Well, it wasn't long ago when we were preaching our Advent sermon series, talking about Christmas, talking about the incarnation of Christ. At one of those weeks, we specifically honed in and looked at the virgin birth. And one of the significant things we spoke of, we talked about, with the virgin birth was that God has this way in Scripture and in history of elevating a person through some kind of incredible birth story. When God goes out of his way to make the birth of a human being an incredible event, that's God's way of telling us this is an important person. We talked about how Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. Because he had the most incredible birth story of anyone in scripture. The most unlikely of births in all of scripture. As a matter of fact, a scientifically impossible birth. Which was a virgin birth. And so Christ having this incredible birth signified and set him apart as one of the most incredible, well we know the most incredible person that's ever lived. But the point of Jesus though was he was sort of the fulfillment of this pattern. Even right before Jesus was John the Baptist and he came to set the way for Christ. Jesus says he's, there's no greater man other than John. Jesus had a very high view of John and we know that John himself was born to a barren woman. We see Moses. We've been in our Sunday school looking at Moses. And Moses has this incredible birth story. He wasn't born to a virgin or a barren woman. But nonetheless, he has this amazing circumstantial uh, history around his birth of Pharaoh was trying to kill him. And his mom hid him in the basket in the bushels. And then he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And so now the very person who was trying to kill him is now taking care of him and allowing his mother, who was supposed to give him up to wean him and raise him. It's It's incredible. And all throughout the scriptures, we have incredible people being born of barren women. Samson. Another famous one is Isaac, born to Sarah. And as we saw last week, Samuel was born to Hannah. And Hannah, as we saw two weeks ago, was barren. For, for many years, she, they labored and tried and were unable to have children. And so what the text has done for us from the first two weeks is it has established the significance of Samuel. We need to know and believe that Samuel is going to be very, very significant through the rest of the book. And today, we sort of cap that off with his dedication, his coronation, if you will. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We are going to read verses 21 through 28 today. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there." 
Our text this morning begins in an interesting way because it begins with Elkanah taking this vow upon himself. Right? If you remember from last week, Hannah, she was praying for a child. She, she makes this vow to God. She says, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him to you. I will give him to the temple. I will give him to the Lord. Hannah made that vow. That was Hannah's vow. But what does the text say in verse 21? Why was the following year, so another year has passed, and Samuel wants to go up to make the offering, but it doesn't just say to make the yearly sacrifice to what? To pay his vow. Isn't that interesting? In Numbers chapter 30, you'll find an entire listing of the different kinds of vows that people were permitted to make in the Old Testament. And in Numbers 30, one of the things you'll find is there is this dilemma, and we're not going to get into all of them today, about what about women who made vows before they got married and then they get married, now they're supposed to submit to their husbands. What's the point of that vow? How do you submit? What if he doesn't want it? And it brings up these different circumstances, but one of the things that's very, very clear in the text is that when a woman made a vow, her husband ultimately, as the head of the household, was the one who okayed or affirmed it. So a woman could make a vow, a married woman could make a vow, but if the husband didn't want it, that vow is null and void. And so what this text is very subtly doing to us is it's reminding us, I know that I had some harsh words to say about Elkanah, and he brought them upon himself, he deserved them. But altogether, Elkanah is a righteous man, he's a good man, we need to see that, and we need to believe that. And this is one of those subtle ways the text communicates that to us. Elkanah did not, for example, go home and go, Hannah, what were you thinking Like, we've been praying for this child, you've been wanting this child for so long, and you finally get your chance, and you want to just get rid of him forever. Shame on you, woman. No. He doesn't do that. He recognizes that God responded to the vow. He recognizes God was honored by this. He approves of this, so I am going to approve of this. So he, as the head of the household, affirms the vow, and it now becomes his And so he enters into this promise with Hannah, and he says, this is my vow, and I'm going to make sure it's paid. I'm going to make sure that we honor God in what we said. But the text, for some reason, I don't know exactly why the text decided to tell us this, but the text tells us that uh, they didn't take the the child up literally the next year. Why? Well, in verse 22, Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only that the Lord may establish his word. So, I don't know exactly why the text felt, the author of this text felt this was necessary details, My suspicion, this is total just conjecture, I I don't know this for sure, but my suspicion is that there's there's an apologetic motive here. In other words, I wonder if maybe there weren't some Jews in this day who were questioning whether this vow was truly honored. Because, I mean, after all, Hannah made this vow, and then the year passes, no child dedicated the temple. Another year passes, no child dedicated the temple. Because here's what we have to remember. The weaning process where you weaned a child from breast milk to solid foods, uh, it took much longer in this day and age than it does today. So remember, we can't take our cultural expectations and customs with all of our modern developments and advancements and securities and protections and impute it onto them. So the weaning process today is a relatively short process, but back then it was a lot longer. So 
she waited, we, we suspect, given the weaning process of the day, Samuel was probably three years old by the time they finally said, okay, he's done weaning, he can kind of eat for himself, we're going to take him up to the temple. So I suspect that there may be like an apologetic motive here. Like if, if Hannah truly was this honorable, faithful woman, why did it take her three years to honor her vow? So I, th- I think that's probably why. But for if, even if that's not, for some reason, it's important for us to know that Hannah did not take the child right away. But she knew, what what are we going to make the Elkanah try to take care of him and feed him when he's this newborn infant? No, he he needs to be able to eat himself. He's not ready yet. But the point is that she did eventually, at her earliest moment, at the earliest time of convenience, take her son to the temple to fulfill the vow that was made. As Elkanah said, there was a word spoken over Samuel and he wanted to make sure that word was honored. And so we see in verse 24 that they do go up. And here's what's interesting. When they go up for the sacrifice, the text also tells us what they brought with them. Now, there's, uh, we have to geek out a little bit for a second here, just because this actually is kind of important. But there's some interesting translation debate in this text. For example, my Bible reads uh, in verse 24, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull. Does anybody else's translation say something different? Is that what everybody says? A three-year-old bull? Phyllis, what does yours say? With three bulls. There's some debate in the text as to whether this was a three-year-old bull or if they brought three bulls. And the most popular opinion in the translations has been a three-year-old bull. And the reason some translators want to do that is because later on it talks about the slaughtering of the bull. And so they think clearly there's only one here that's being slaughtered. So they think maybe the three is reference to the age. I actually prefer Phyllis's translation. I think they brought three bulls with them. I don't, I don't think it really matters what the age of the bull was. They, they brought three bulls with them. And I think that fits the context because when we look at an ephah of flour, two things to know about that. We don't measure stuff in that anymore. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. That's about six gallons worth. It's a lot of flour. And if you read the Old Testament, it never requires that much flour. They brought a ton with them. So they bring a ton of flour and you always bring wine when you bring a sacrifice. And so there's been debate, like why the large quantity? And why three bowls? They didn't need three. Why so much flour and why all this wine? It's, it is possible that some of this was for the sacrifice, a small portion, and then the rest was just for the festivities. Because, you know, they ate all week and this was a week-long thing. And that's very possible. But what I think is most likely happening in this text, what I think the author is trying to get us to see is the gratitude. And the reason I see that is in the Old Testament, there was an option for these sacrifices. You know, you would have, the Old Testament was very generous in the sacrifices. For example, if you, it would, it would tell you, here's what you can bring. But if you're poor, you can bring lesser things, things that aren't as expensive. So poor people were given permission by God to not sacrifice as expensive items. It was harder on them. But it also went the other direction, where God would say, listen, if you want to bring more than the sacrifice requires, to, as a proportion of how much you've been blessed, then you can do that as well. And so I think that these two, that the two halves of 1 Samuel are in 
are in contradiction here. Not, not that the text contradicts itself, but they're being compared negatively. The text opened up with a gloomy, sad, depressing, bitter sacrifice. There was fighting and depression and tears and weeping. And then the next year they go up for sacrifice and it is joyous. Hannah and Elkanah say, we have been so blessed. We are going to bring according to how we've been blessed. And it's far more than the law requires. I think the text wants us to see the difference in this sacrifice this time around. This is joyous. It's party time in Shiloh. They are feeling blessed by God. They are happy and joyful. And and what a reminder this ought to be for us as we approach our ceremonies, our holidays, our Lord's Supper. May we wake up every morning feeling, I've been blessed by God more than I deserve. Phyllis says this to me every morning. I'm sorry, Phyllis, I don't mean to, to single you out twice. But every morning I see her, Phyllis, how are you doing? You know, she says, I am blessed. That's how they felt. I am blessed. We are blessed of the Lord. And so we are here to celebrate and to honor his law. This was, in other words, this was a special year for Elkanah and for Hannah. And so they dedicate him to the Lord. They bring him to the priest. And notice Hannah's humility. You know, she says, he's probably, it's been three years. We don't know if he even remembers this. She says, I don't know if you remember, but I was the woman who was here crying. You know, she doesn't throw him under the bus. Yeah, I was that woman. Remember you accused me of being drunk? Remember you thought I was drunk and you yelled at me and you tried to kick me out of the temple? Yeah, that was me. She's over it. She is celebrating with the Lord. She's not here to insult him or embarrass him. She pays full honor to him. She calls him Lord twice. This is a humble, humble woman. Just just beaming with gratitude. This is a very different circumstance than the first sacrifice we read to. And Samuel was given to the Lord. He was lent to the Lord as long as he lives as an answer to prayer, verse 27 and 28. And so Samuel has now found a new place to worship. A new home, if you will. And I want us to think and dwell upon for a second the the incredible gratitude and joy that the text is revealing to us because you could look at this from another, from another bird's eye view and say, this, this is not an exciting thing. They're giving away their only son. Well, not there, but Hannah's. She's giving him away. He's three years old. She's had three years with him at the most. It might even be less than that. That's just kind of scholarly guess. It might be two. She's had a couple years with the son she's been praying her whole life for. And she's now getting rid of him. Remember, they don't have cell phones. They don't have Facebook. She's going to see her son once a year for the rest of his life. I, I, and I, I would imagine there, this was a little bittersweet. I'm not saying she had no sadness at all. I'm sure this was bittersweet. But the text today, and we're definitely going to see next week when we look at her prayer full response to this, the text does nothing but indicate to us they are filled with nothing but gratitude. Even though you could look at this from a certain perspective and see this as a really sad, terrible thing, the text reminds us that so often our circumstances and how we respond to them depend on our perspective and our willingness to humble ourselves and try to see God's side of things. They could have been a pity party. This could be a sad affair. 
They could have gone up in lament and dust and ashes, ripping their clothes, saying goodbye to their son. They could have not fulfilled their vow. Could have said, well, I mean, this is kind of like a foxhole vow. Like, I was desperate, so I said something. But now that he's here, I don't want to get rid of him. But the text shows us a family, a faithful family, that's going to honor their vow, honor their word, honor their promise, and they're going to go up, and they're not going to be gloomy and play victim the whole way they go up to. Woe is us, we have to give up our son. They are loving God, being blessed by God. They are so excited that God answered their prayer, and they are responding to him with joy and faithfulness. And so we're going to focus on those two things in our application in just a minute. But I want us to kind of summarize what the author's intention in, in giving us this. Because I, I have to be honest, I really struggled this week to think, was this portion of the text really necessary? Like, we know that, that Samuel was born from the last week. Right? God heard Hannah. He remembered her. Samuel's born. You know, the next verse could be, and sometime later after Samuel had been living in the temple... Like, did we really need this? And I was saying, why, why is the author doing this? Is, how, how important is this information? And I think we've already seen some of the significance of that, but I, I really want, I think the author wants us to see two competing, well, not competing, but side-by-side -side, uh, points here. And the first one is, is I, I really believe the author wants us to remember and to make special notice of Hannah's integrity here, of Elkanah's integrity here. That even though she made this vow kind of in a time of desperation, she did not rescind it. She did not take it back. God heard her. God remembered. And she said, and Elkanah said, we are going to be faithful to what we have said. I think the text really wants to elevate this family here as salt and light in their communities. While the rest of Israel, and we're going to see this later on, while the rest of Israel is steeped in unbelief, steeped in idolatry. They don't care hardly at all about God, their covenant, and His law. Here we have a family, a faithful family of integrity that's true to their word. I think, especially if Samuel is the author of this, I, want, I think he's trying to elevate his parents right now. This was a good family, and these were good parents, faithful parents. But I, I also think that God wants us to sort of have a kind of ceremony or a, a capstone to his working, right? God is the one who gave us Samuel. God is the one who orchestrated these events and brought Samuel in and got him dedicated to the temple and is now going to use him in mighty ways. I think God wants a crowning ceremony for what he has accomplished. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to bring up something that might be uh, bitter to you. But, you know, this week there was the big celebration of the President of the United States being sworn in. And I was listening to some podcasts and stuff, and it was interesting. A lot of the, the people that I listen to talk about how they, we, they really don't think we need that kind of a celebration. Like, even if you like the person who's in office, they're kind of thinking, like, why do we have to have this big party at the White House? And there's, you know, and the band is playing, and we have the and I don't have the answer to whether it's necessary or not. But I do think that in this circumstance, God wanted the coronation ceremony. He wanted us to be reminded of his faithfulness. And he reminds us of his faithfulness by revealing and, and, and preserving for us Samuel's crowning ceremony. His dedication 
This is, it's, it's similar to the presidency thing. Here, Samuel's being brought to the temple and saying, God has been faithful. God remembered us. God gave us this child for his service. And so here we are crowning Samuel. And we're going to see who becomes the next prophet of Israel. God is taking his work, his accomplishment, and he's putting it on a pedestal for us. And he's saying, celebrate with me what I have accomplished, what I have done. And so we need to remember the faithfulness of the Lord right now. That he answered Hannah's prayer. And that he brought Samuel. And that Samuel was ultimately not just for the good of Hannah. But for the good of Israel. And David. And Saul. And us today. So we are seeing the faithfulness of this family. And we are celebrating God. And what he is able to accomplish. His faithfulness to his people. So how do we apply this text then? We've, we've, we've examined the text. We've seen what happened. We've looked at the narrative. We've discussed why it's here. Why, why does the author want us to, to know this? And so now the next thing we need to do, we need to conclude with this. So what do I do with it? How does this affect my life? How do I apply this? You know, do I need to start bringing six gallons of flour to church every week? Like what am I supposed to do? Well, I think there's two sort of primary applications we can take away from this text. And the first one is for you parents or hopeful parents out there. And it's this. You need to dedicate your children to the Lord. Every one of us needs to dedicate our children to the Lord. Now, let me explain what we mean by that. Because obviously, I'm not asking you to dedicate your children to the Lord the way Hannah did. I'm not saying that the next time your child is born, you need to bring that child to me. And you need to say, this child is going to live in this church from now on. And he is going to be the new pastor. You are going to raise him to be the new pastor. And this is his home. So take him. I don't want that burden. Please raise your own children. This was a unique vow and a unique covenant that we are no longer under. So no, I'm not asking you to give your children to me. But nonetheless, we follow Hannah's example here. Not in precise practice, but in general principle. So we don't need to do what Hannah did, but we need to take, there is a general principle here that we can apply. And that is this, that Hannah, after making this vow, even though it was probably a difficult thing to give her son away, Hannah knew my son is ultimately not my own. My son does not ultimately belong to me. This is not my decision at this point. And so that is the principle that we as parents need to take in and be reminded of. Your children ultimately are not yours. They don't belong to you. There, are, there is a certain avenue of life where they do. Right? I'm not saying it's wrong to use that language ever. Yeah, if the government comes banging on your door and says, give us your children, you can say, no, they're mine, they're not yours. Right? Yeah, there is a certain legal sense. And yes, your children are yours. They belong to you. But in a spiritual sense, it's interesting, Hannah, notice what she says in verse 28, or forgive me, verse 27 and 28, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him, therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. There's this incredible reciprocal circle here where God lends us his children and so what does Hannah do? Lends him right back. Thank you for giving me this child, you take it. That is the kind of principle here that we go into parenting. We go into it remembering God is the one who's given me this child. 
It is he we've seen last week who opens and closes the womb. It is he who forms us in our inward parts. Yes, he uses us and he uses what we do in marriage to create children, but it is ultimately his creation, his child, his soul. It is his. He has given it to us. And so it is our job as parents to raise them with that perspective. This child is not my own. I have an obligation, a duty to God with my child. Now there's a lot of specifics that we don't have time to get into. Even that is kind of general and broad. But let me just share a a weakness of my own before we move on to the next point. After Layla and I found out that we were pregnant, one of the most, and I'm sure people who have had children here can relate to this to some degree, um, one of the most popular questions when we tell people is, do you know the gender yet? And we say no. They say, what are you hoping for? Which is, if we're being honest, I get the question I've asked other people. It's kind of silly because like, we don't care. But it did get me thinking about, like, if, if for some reason God did make it, give it up to me, like, what decision I would make. And I think my answer would su- surprise a lot of people. I, I used to tell people a lot of times that I actually would almost prefer a girl. And they would say, why? Like, why don't you want a boy? And it's because when I look into the weakness of my own heart, I admit it would be more difficult for me to give a boy to the Lord. In other words, there's something about the selfishness and pride in my heart where I am worried about having a son and expecting him to be just like me. He needs to like the sports that I like. He needs to invest his time in the things that I want him. I have all of these expectations for who he ought to be. And for some reason, I don't have as many of those with girls. And so I am afraid of myself when it comes to a boy. Because I realize my own weakness to say, my son, if it is a boy, my son is not ultimately mine. My father's a pastor. And I chose to go into the ministry. And I think it's this really cool, special thing. Like father, like son. I, I take great pride in that. But you know what? If I have a son and he doesn't want to be a pastor, that's none of my business. I could, I could dream and think of how amazing it would be just to have a lineage of Brooks boys who are just pastors, each one after the next. That's not my call. That's not my decision to make. My duty is to raise him in the admonition and nurture of the Lord, to teach him the gospel, to discipline him into holiness, to faithfully raise him under the rule and reign of Christ. But there is so much about him or her that is none of my business. Why? Because they're not mine and they're not yours. You know who parents feel this, I think, most acutely? Are the parents of missionaries. I think these are the parents who a lot of times feel it the most acutely. Wait a minute, my child wants to go across the world to a dangerous country? No, absolutely not. My child will not fly across the world. Now I can never see them. I can barely keep up with them. They're in danger all the time. Of course, what parent would volunteer their kid for that? Probably none. But guess what? It's not our choice. It's not our decision to make. And we need to come to terms with that. And we need to be grateful for that. That a good and gracious, all-powerful God is in more control of my child's future than me. That's good news. That's very good news. So there is a humility to being a parent. You have a duty and you need to honor that duty faithfully to God, but there is boundaries to that duty. At some point, we have to remember, this child does not belong to me. 
It belongs to the Lord. I, don't, I do not get to raise this child however I want. I have to raise this child according to the word of the one who gave me this child. So may parents be guided by the scriptures and how to be parents. But I think there's an even more broad, more general application for this. Dedicating our children to the Lord. I think there's another one that's, and again, it's, 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 it's a little broad. But it's really important. And that's this issue of faithfulness. I could not stop reading this text. And to me, the main thing I was taking away was God has been faithful. And now Hannah and Elkanah have been faithful back. Like that's the relationship I'm seeing. God heard Hannah. He loved Hannah. He responded to her. And now they have taken that response and they have not done whatever they want with it. They have returned that faithfulness back to God. And so I think that one of the things we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 1, 21 through 28, is that the appropriate way that we respond to the love of God is faithfulness, obedience. When we think of how good and gracious God has been to us, when we think about his faithfulness to us, how should we respond to that? With faithfulness. Obedience. This is the common canard that so many non-Christians or, or people maybe who believe that works are part of salvation. They love to think that this is our mindset. Like God has been merciful to you in the gospel. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has cast them as far as the east is from the west. By faith you have been saved, not by works. You have been saved by the blood of Christ alone. So we get to just go do whatever we want then, right? I can sin a million times tomorrow. It doesn't matter. Jesus covered them. So I'm just going to run with my life and do whatever I want and take advantage, take for granted the goodness, faithfulness, love, mercy of God. No, all throughout the scriptures we have example. God has been faithful to us. What's the appropriate response? Be faithful to him. As the book of Romans says, may God's kindness lead you to repentance. God's kindness does not lead us to frivolous lifestyles. God's kindness does not lead us to liberality and sin. No, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Because faithfulness is really at the heart of who God is. The Old Testament is, goes out of its way to make it crystal clear. You want to know who God is? He is our covenant faithful head. He is the God who makes covenants with his people and he is always faithful. He keeps his vows. He keeps his promises. He keeps his side of the bargain. It is only us who fail it. The book of Hebrews talks about this in, in, when it talks about the transition from the old to the new. And the book of Hebrews goes out of its way to say, yeah, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. But it's not a, an attack on the old covenant. It's because they had different natures. The old covenant was ultimately left to our faithfulness. God said, I will do my part. You need to do yours. And that's why the book of Hebrews says that the old covenant, we needed a new one. It was broken. And, but it goes out of the way. It was not the covenant itself that was faulty, but we were faulty. The problem was not in the covenant. It was with one half of the parties in that covenant. The covenant was good. God was faithful. We were not. And so the reason the new covenant is better is because that is established on Jesus' faithfulness. So now we have two parties who are perfectly in obedience, God and Christ. We can't break it. We can't annul it. And that's why it's superior. But the fault of the old covenant was not in the covenant itself. It was in the fact that we as human beings are so consistently unfaithful. 
And the reason that's a problem is because we are revealed how we are to behave by who God is. God is the standard of morality. God is the standard for how we live our lives. And when we look at God, we don't see unfaithfulness. We see persistent, relentless, merciful faithfulness. You want to know why we as Christians are so saddened when we see covenants broken? Like marriage, for example. You want to know why divorce makes us sad? It's not because divorce causes pain. It does. But you know what? There's this trend that I see on uh, social media where people are showcasing these like happy divorces. And they'll show, you know, a couple that has been divorced and they're like high five and then hanging out and they're still best friends. And it says, see, this is what divorce should look like. Now, I'm not happy. Yeah, obviously, I would rather two people part ways peacefully rather than part ways in hatred. Like, yeah, that is, I guess, a benefit. But by no means am I going to celebrate unfaithfulness. Now, this is not to say that if you've had a divorce, shame on you. We are forgiven. I've been unfaithful to God. I've been unfaithful to promises. We've all been unfaithful. This is not to single out divorcees, but it's just to say, why is it that we are so saddened by this? Because if people can do it amicably, it shouldn't make us sad, right? If everybody's happy, why should it make us sad? The reason it makes us sad is because we believe there's something more important than just people's happiness. Faithfulness is who God is. He does not lie. He does not break covenant. So the reason we think these relationships are so important is not because, well, they make people happy. That's not why it matters. It matters because God is faithful. And so that tells us that we need to be faithful to our promises and faithful to our vows. And thank the Lord there's forgiveness for all of us when we're not. Keep your marker here and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. I just love this demonstration of the faithfulness of God, especially when we compare it to each and every one of us who is not as faithful as God. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Begin with me in verse 13. This is speaking about one of the great covenants God made, the covenant with Abraham. And notice what this text says. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is not our sermon passage, so we don't have time to break down every verse of this. 
But the general point is this. God's covenants are oaths that he makes to us. They are promises that he makes to us. And when he made one to Abraham, he wanted to assure to Abraham, this will be fulfilled. So he made an oath. That's what humans do. They make oaths to say, this, this is, I promise you, this is going to happen. But the problem for God is that when we make oaths, we swear by things greater than ourselves. You know, people say like, on my mother's grave. Which, by the way, just as a quick side note, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us to no longer make oaths like that. We don't swear by our mom's grave. We don't swear by... As a matter of fact, I would even tell you, I personally, given what is said in Matthew 5, I would not even be comfortable swearing on a Bible. I don't think we should swear by the Bible. I don't think we... Jesus says, do not make oaths by heaven and earth and the sky. Like, we're not supposed to make these kinds of oaths. So I would encourage you, don't, even as, just as a joke, oh, I swear to God, I'm going to do this. No, don't say that. Or, oh, on my, on my mother's grave, I promise you. No, don't say that. We don't, we don't make those kinds of oaths anymore. But that's what was happening. People expected that. Like, your word, I didn't really believe your word unless you're willing to make it an oath. And that's why Jesus says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't really need an oath. Just be it faithful. Just be true to your word. Just say yes and do it. But the point is this, is, is human beings made these kinds of oaths to affirm, like, this, I promise this is going to get done. So God says, I'm going to make sure I do the same thing to Abraham. I am going to assure Abraham that this covenant, that I will be faithful to it. But what's the problem? God can't put his hand on the Bible. Because he's greater than the Bible. That would be like me swearing an oath. On this pen, you have my word, I will fulfill my vow. If not, you can take this pen from me. That doesn't give me a lot of assurity because this is worthless. So what can God, what's greater than God, what can he swear by? There's nothing greater than him, so he swears by himself. In my own name, according to the great I am, I promise you according to me, on me, I will fulfill my oath. And what's the text getting at? The text is saying he did this to Abraham and then he fulfilled it. So that we as Christians, we look back on that text now and we now have an anchor for our soul. What does that mean? When our circumstances are crazy, when our life is crazy, when we're spiritually depressed and fearful and broken and scattered, we have something that should give us assurance and hope and joy and it anchors us and it keeps us tethered when the winds and the waves are blowing. And what is it? What is the anchor to our soul? What keeps us tethered? It's the faithfulness of God. He swore an oath to Abraham and he fulfilled it. We serve the God with whom it is impossible to lie. He cannot lie. It's not something he's even able to do. And the God who cannot lie, who has been faithful to every single covenant promise, exists in a covenant relationship with us today. He has made promises to us today. And the text says that those promises and the unchanging character of God is the anchor for your soul. No matter what happens in our lives, nothing can undo or change what Christ has accomplished for you. And what Christ has promised to do, His return, the resurrection of the dead, the glory of the saints, nothing can change that. It is as sure as anything you can possibly imagine. And it's an anchor for our soul. What is this anchor? That God is faithful. He does not break his promises. He does not fail to meet his side of the bargain. And the glory of the new covenant is we have no side of the bargain. It is God's and only God's. 
And he's going to be faithful. He's going to fulfill his promises. And so let the example we have from Samuel, which is this small moment in history, be merely a microcosm of the grand faithfulness of God. He wasn't just faithful to Hannah. He wasn't just faithful with Samuel. That is just one of many reminders we have that he is faithful always. And so how do we respond to our faithful, unchanging God? 